This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. In this month's series, YouTube Mayhem, I share stories of YouTube content creators who were involved in true crime cases. In this episode, a young man who dubs himself Mr. Anime becomes one of the founding members of the anime community on YouTube, gaining a large following as a critic and reviewer. But he'll later admit to harboring dark, violent fantasies most of his life after he commits a shocking act of violence against his closest family members. This is the second chapter in the series, YouTube Mayhem, the case of Mr. Anime, Family Annihilator. The Sessler family was just a typical American family living in rural small-town Texas. Rhonda Weiss had grown up in the nearby town of Hempstead, and according to her best friend Jeanette Garrett, collected a group of underdogs, kids who were different and didn't fit in with the popular crowd, whom she took under her wing. A studious girl, Rhonda would be honored as class valedictorian at her high school. Her future included marriage to Lawton Sessler, a move 15 miles away to Waller, Texas, where she would work for the local paper, and becoming a mother to two boys, Mark Ellen in 1985 and Trey Eric in 1989. Lawton Sessler was raised in Waller, became a teacher in his hometown, and spent 30 years as an educator at Robinson Elementary. He would be selected as a Spotlight Award recipient both in 2000 and 2006, for his outstanding contributions as a teacher. Their eldest son, Mark, attended his mother's alma mater, Sam Houston University in Huntsville, Texas. He would graduate with a degree in business administration. Their youngest son, Trey, had always been a bit of an outlier in the family. The baby of the family by four years, Trey was one of those kids who was creative and intelligent, but not very motivated in most endeavors, unless he was allowed to march to the beat of whatever drum happened to be playing in his head. He was an average student who played trombone in his school band. By his freshman year in high school, his interests had morphed from music to technology, at least the level of technology available as a member of Waller High School's video club. But Trey's parents, always supportive of their son's hobbies and interests, purchased for their youngest a home computer and video equipment. Trey used them to produce his own homemade videos. By 2006, while he was still in high school, Trey started a YouTube channel where he would upload his short movies, a series of skits starring Trey, and sometimes his brother and mom as supporting cast members. One of Trey's interests was anime, hand-drawn or computer-generated animation originally produced in Japan, but later spread worldwide in the form of comics, television series, and online videos. In 2006, he began producing a series of videos dedicated to reviewing and critiquing anime. Calling himself Mr. Anime, Trey Sessler became a founding member of the anime community on YouTube and built a following. He would later rechristen his channel LensCap Productions and upload creative, self-produced video skits and demonstrations along with his anime reviews. Over 300 videos were listed on his channel in four and a half years' time, with over 450 million views total. 
After graduating in 2007, Trey Sessler spent most of his time creating videos for YouTube. He enrolled at Blinn College, a local community college, but was an unenthusiastic student at best. After a few semesters, he dropped out of college altogether, something that caused tension at home, especially between Trey and his father. At the same time, Sessler's YouTube viewers noted a change in the content he was posting to his channel. Rather than focusing on his large subscriber base's interests in anime, he began indulging his other interests, some that friends and others considered somewhat disturbing. At first, he shared content that resonated with many young people who'd grown up in the era of mass shooters and other sensational stories. It's a tragic reality that people of Trey's age were all too familiar with the increase in violent acts in America aimed at random strangers. Sessler addressed the topic of school shootings like the massacre that happened at Columbine High School in Colorado in 1999 when he was just a boy. As the number and frequency of school shootings increased in the early 2000s, Sessler frequently dedicated videos to commentary on this topic. At first, he decried the violence that was being perpetrated against people his age, stating in one video in 2009, I'm ranting on something a little bit anime unrelated. I'm ranting on all the shootings that have been happening. I'm a firearms owner myself, but it's a little bit disturbing to know that you could be a victim in something like this at these times. All the people that were victims, you think it won't happen to me, but sometimes it does. But every day that I open Yahoo, it's like, well, time to see what today's shooting is, and hey, there's another one. I don't know when it's going to stop. I think, why? Why? Trey Sessler was a gun owner, as he stated. Like many young men in certain areas of the world, particularly in the U.S., gun ownership was a common rite of passage, like obtaining a driver's license. By the time he was 18, the legal age to purchase weapons in Texas, he had obtained a few guns, including a 12-gauge shotgun and an antique Russian rifle with a bayonet. But by the time he was 22, he admitted to owning more than 30 guns, some that he would later sell or trade for other types of weapons as he amassed his arsenal. His family would tell friends that it was common to see Trey walking around their home holding a weapon. By 2010, Sessler was frequently using these weapons as props in his short films. He now was creating content that revolved almost exclusively around violent themes. He was either reviewing movies and animation that depicted graphic violence, or he was creating videos himself that focused on violent subject matter. In October of that year, one of his YouTube videos featured a review of the horror flick High School of the Dead. Trey opened the video by pulling out a rifle with a flashlight attached to its barrel. Get your rifle with flashlight attachment ready, he tells his viewers, before beginning the video. His regular viewers noted that many of his videos now either featured real weapons displayed by the host or were dedicated to talking about weapons. He also became obsessed with the topics of serial killers and mass shootings around this time. Now when speaking about mass shootings, it was no longer to denounce them as he previously had, but instead to rattle off details about each case. From Columbine High to Virginia Tech and other high-profile mass killings, Sessler had obviously researched each incident extensively. He used his knowledge to regale his audience with the blow-by-blow of each crime, including planning, execution, and kill counts. Later, he would admit to having studied spree and serial killers for over two years, becoming, quote, obsessed with them. He identified his, quote, favorite killers as Ted Bundy, Eric Harris, Dylan Klebold, Kip Kinkle, and David Berkowitz, the son of Sam. Sessler would later describe himself as lonely and depressed during this time, although he did have groups of friends, both male and female, with whom he frequently socialized. 
However, as he began immersing himself deeper into the obsession with guns and violence, he drank to excess and took both prescribed and unprescribed medications in greater quantities. These included antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications, and methamphetamines. He would sometimes sell or trade his guns for pills when he was short on money. And Sessler was often short on cash as he gained and then lost or walked away from a series of low-level jobs. His parents had purchased for him a 2010 Ford Mustang so he'd have transportation to his college campus. When he still couldn't seem to get to his classes on time most days, he was also allowed to live in his maternal grandmother's house rent-free. Rhonda's mother had died almost 10 years earlier, and the home was vacant at the time that he moved in. Although I'm sure his parents had hopes that the freedom he'd been provided would instill in their youngest child a sense of maturity and responsibility, instead it did the opposite. Trey used this opportunity to indulge all his dark obsessions away from prying eyes. Not only did his drinking and drug use increase, but he began prowling at night around the town of Hempstead, Texas, secretly engaging in some very disturbing activities, including animal abuse. At first, Sessler drove his Mustang on the outskirts of town with his firearms in tow. Under the cover of the dark, he fired the weapons at abandoned buildings. Later, he started shooting out windows of other buildings, a church, the Hempstead Library, and the high school. After these pursuits also proved too boring to appease him, Sessler began using farm animals and pets as target practice. He was always careful not to leave evidence behind, picking up the shell casings and even taking the extra precaution to crush them in a vise and drop them into beer cans, which he then threw out in his weekly trash pickup. Of course, no one knew of these violent fantasies and behaviors, least of all his closest family members. This was not to say that they harbored no suspicions about him. His father's aunt, Weta Frierson, said of her great-nephew, I'll have to admit, I found him quite strange. She said when she visited the Sesslers and greeted their youngest son, he merely looked at her without acknowledging the greeting or responding. But naturally, I wasn't going to tell Trey's parents that he acts peculiar, she added. Peculiar wasn't the half of it, unfortunately. Perhaps no one could have predicted the extent of Trey Sessler's predilections for violence and how they would play out just a few short months later. By 2010, 20-year-old Trey Sessler was spending his time mostly idle, playing video games, taking a cocktail of prescribed and unprescribed drugs including Oxycontin, Prozac, methamphetamines, and marijuana, prowling the streets at night using his arsenal of weapons, target shooting at both animate and inanimate objects, and obsessing about serial killers and mass shooters. What could go wrong? Plenty, as you may have already guessed, dear listeners. Although he was a successful YouTuber with hundreds of thousands of followers to his channel, which provided him a modest income, Trey Sessler was not interested in becoming YouTube famous. No, instead, he harbored fantasies of becoming a true-life embodiment of those he had come to greatly admire, serial killers and mass shooters. Early on, he discarded the idea of becoming an infamous serial killer like some of his heroes. This wasn't because he was squeamish about killing multiple people or the planning involved. His biggest challenge, he later stated, was the fact that in order to be considered a textbook serial killer, a cool-down period between victims was required. This, Sessler believed, would create too much anxiety for him. He didn't relish the idea of constantly waiting for a knock at his door that would signal he'd been caught. So the next best thing in his mind 
was to perpetrate a mass killing, modeling his crime after single-event mass shooters like Sung Hui Cho, who killed 33 and injured 23 others during a shooting spree at Virginia Tech State University in 2007. The only problem Sessler foresaw in carrying out such an act was the shame and embarrassment his family would face after the fact. No, this would not do, he decided. But Sessler could not let go of the goal he'd set for himself. This would be his grand opus, the thing that would put him on the map and make him famous, way beyond what he could hope to obtain as a content creator on YouTube. He'd been obsessed with becoming infamous like those whose names had become synonymous with evil acts, Gacy, Dahmer, Klebold, and Harris, and he craved the type of infamy those names conjured. He would later admit to having constant thoughts about violence, quote, I don't think a period of two or three days went by that I didn't think about some sort of violent act, Sessler later told investigators. Some of his tentative plans included a mass shooting during his high school alma mater's homecoming football game or going on a shooting spree during the annual Watermelon Festival in Hempstead. An alternate plan was to ram his car through a gate and into the Waller High School courtyard at lunchtime, after which he would emerge and begin picking off students using a high-powered rifle. In February of 2012, after two days of planning, Trey Sessler uploaded a video to his YouTube channel titled, Mr. Anime is Planning Something. He told viewers that he would be taking some time off from uploading videos as a reward to himself. Well, hi everybody, it's Mr. Anime here. This is just an update video to let you guys know that uh, I'm going to reward myself with a, probably a two or three week break coming up here from YouTube videos, uh, anime reviews in particular. I might do some blog stuff. Um, I want to thank you guys a lot for sticking with me and watching the channel. Uh, I got more subscribers than ever. I have more views than ever. And uh, everything is going really good. So um, I'll probably be putting out some blog videos, like I said. The Google AdSense thing has been going great. And uh, I really appreciate you guys um, clicking on my uh, page. Well, I won't say it, but you guys know what to do. And I'll, uh, I'll see you with some blog videos. Thanks for watching my channel. A month later, on March 13, 2012, Sessler posted a new video on his channel titled Mr. Anime's New Job. In this video, he announced that he had secured a full-time job, which he was excited about. I have some pretty good news, he begins. I found a full-time job in an department I'm interested in, film. However, he laments, the job will prevent him from posting new videos on his channel for the foreseeable future. Whether or not he really had secured a new job would later be questioned. In any case, this was the last video that would be posted on his channel. Twenty-two-year-old Trey Sussler decided his only goal in life was to carry out a mass shooting and go down in infamy. Before he could put this plan into action, however, he determined the need to dispatch with those closest to him. On the evening of March 19, 2012, Sessler was at his parents' home in Waller. Both his parents, his father Lawton, 58, and his mother Rhonda, 57, as well as his older brother Mark, 26, whom Trey described as his best friend, were also home. As the evening grew late, only his mother was stirring about the house. His father was already in bed, and his brother was relaxing in his bedroom. Trey summoned his mother to the garage where his car was parked. He claimed that he wanted to show her a problem with the car. 
When Rhonda Sessler entered the garage, her youngest son shot her four times in the chest with a shotgun. He then calmly walked back into the house and down the hall toward the bedrooms. Mark called out to his younger brother, complaining about the noise. He may have seen Trey walk past his room carrying the shotgun, but would have thought nothing of it, as it was a common sight, Trey carrying a weapon. Trey went into his own bedroom and retrieved another gun. Mark looked up just in time to see his brother pointing a weapon at him. He only had a second to react before Trey fired the first time. Shot at least once, Mark was still able to stagger into a bathroom, slam the door shut, and lock it. Without hesitation, Trey then began firing the weapon into the bathroom door multiple times in an attempt to bust it open. Upon hearing the shots, his father woke from sleep and called out. Seconds later, Trey entered his parents' room and shot his father twice. Lawton Sessler didn't even have time to throw off the bed covers before he was killed where he lay. Trey then returned to the bathroom and continued to beat down the door. He found his brother lying in a fetal position, bleeding out from two gunshot wounds. He fired another shot into Mark's head. Sessler would later tell investigators that he then retraced his steps to make sure that his parents and siblings were dead. He picked up another more powerful weapon, an AR-15, from his room and returned to the garage. Noting that his mother hadn't moved, he said he thought, well, she's probably dead. But, quote, popped two more rounds at her just to make sure, end quote. He then went into the master bedroom and shot his father once more, after which he told himself, well, I think that's probably got him. After murdering his entire family, Sessler called and left voicemail messages at both of his parents' workplaces to explain why they wouldn't be in on Monday. Trey Sessler remained in the family home with the bodies of his family members for the next 24 hours. He spent much of that time trashing the home from top to bottom, ransacking every room, turning over shelves, breaking apart furniture, using various weapons to shoot out light fixtures and television sets, destroying framed family photos, throwing food out of cabinets in the refrigerator, emptying knives out of the kitchen drawers and impaling them into the cabinets, and shooting and killing the family pets, including a bird, a ferret, and goldfish. Later, the police chief would describe the Sessler home as, quote, a war zone. The crime scene was not contained to one area of the residence. It was from one end to the other, front to back, he stated to reporters. While this in of itself was unusual, there was another aspect of the crime scene that was even more bizarre. Throughout the home, Sessler had scrawled phrases onto walls and doors. Some of them read, I love my family, I will never forgive myself, and I don't know why I did this. He would later state that he had spent the night in the garage, sleeping next to his mother's body. In the morning, he loaded his car with an assault rifle and over 100 rounds of ammunition and drove to Waller High School to carry out the next part of his plan. On Tuesday, March 20th, around 7 a.m., Lawton Sessler's aunt attempted to reach him by phone. Rita Freyerson was calling to check in with her nephew about his terminally ill father, who had recently been placed in hospice care. She and Lawton had been in frequent contact regarding arrangements and decisions that needed to be made for his care, but on this morning when she dialed the Sessler's home phone, all she heard was static on the other end of the line. I thought, that's strange, she later told police. Later that afternoon, she learned that police vehicles had been seen parked outside of her nephew's home and that crime scene tape was strung across the front yard. She left for the Sessler home as quickly as she could to find out what had happened. Officers had been alerted by the Sessler's co-workers as well as family members when they couldn't be reached on Monday. 
When Mr. Sessler didn't return to his classroom that week after the spring break, people quickly realized that something was wrong. He was one of the most dedicated and longest-serving educators at Robinson Elementary, and a man who rarely missed a day of work in over 30 years. Police were dispatched to the Sessler home on Far Street to conduct a welfare check. Officers knocked on the door, but no one answered. Circling the home and peering into a window, one officer saw a body of a man lying prone in a pool of blood. When officers entered, they found the bodies of 58-year-old Lawton Sessler, his 57-year-old wife Rhonda, and their son, 26-year-old Mark. All had been shot multiple times. The only person missing was their youngest son, 22-year-old Trey Sessler. After seeing the confessions written in marker on the home's walls and doors, officers were pretty sure he was their main suspect. A warrant was issued for Trey Eric Sessler. Hours later, he was located in Magnolia, Texas, about 30 miles southwest of Waller. His black Mustang was found parked in front of a friend's home. He was taken into custody without incident and booked into the Waller County Jail. Questioned by detectives for over eight hours, Trey Sessler confessed to planning and carrying out the murders of his family members. He showed little remorse and answered most questions quite matter-of-factly and without emotion. The thing about my family is um, I would protect them with my life. But, um, at the same time, if anyone was going to hurt him, it was going to be me. He speaks coldly about shooting his mother. And uh, I fire about four times. And I don't know where she gets hit, but I know it's somewhere in the torso area. And she falls like a kind of brick. After I did that, it was like, well, I'm already committed, really. Can't really go to my brother and my dad and be like, yeah, I just killed our mom. He then describes seeing his brother's body, and even while saying the sight was terrible, registers no emotion. And uh, my brother's lying there, and this big pile of blood is terrible. It's just a bad sight. And I was like, okay, uh, I guess that's got him. Sessler almost ridicules his father's surprised reaction upon waking to the sounds of gunshots. He kind of gets up half asleep, you know, he's like, oh, you know, he doesn't know what's going on. So I run in there, I shoot at him a couple times. Finally, Sessler chillingly describes shooting each of his family members again, as if he is doing them a favor. I don't want anyone to be suffering, laying on the floor for hours, moaning and groaning. He also admitted to planning a mass murder at the high school. He claimed that his goal after killing his family was to enter Waller High School during a planned homecoming pep rally and open fire. He wanted to, quote, kill at least 70 people, he told police. However, after annihilating his family, as he claimed, in order to spare them from the burden and shame of being the family of a mass shooter, he found himself unable to go through with the attack at the high school. Everything had, quote, just become too real, he said. Although he had obsessed about carrying out a mass killing for over two years, he insisted that he had not intended to kill his family on the day of the murders. If I had woken up that day and you would have come to me and asked, are you going to kill your family tonight? I would have definitely said no, he told investigators. Why then, they wanted to know. Sessler rambled and contradicted himself, first saying he didn't know why he had killed the people he claimed to love, and then stating his motivation to be remembered in history as a mass shooter, like his heroes, Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris. 
Other times, he tried to blame any number of factors for his actions, including drug use, depression and loneliness, and the terminal illness of his grandfather, who died four days after his son and his family were murdered, whom he said he was close to. But he also said he was closest to his mother, the first person he murdered, shooting her at point-blank range. Investigators weren't quite sure what to make of Trey Sussler, other than the fact that he seemed to only have trace amounts of genuine human emotion. The one time he showed heightened emotion was while recounting the details of mass shootings and other violent acts. At one point, he went on so long regarding the details of the Columbine High School shooting that investigators had to cut him off. He told them that he had watched a documentary about the case over 50 times and had studied other shooters to analyze, quote, their successes and mistakes in the lead-up to his own planned attack. Trey Sessler was held on $3 million bond. In August of 2012, after entering a plea of guilty to triple murder, he was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Later, he expressed satisfaction at knowing he'd remain in prison for the rest of his life. It was, quote, where I belong, he told reporters, behind bars. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're less than a month away from CrimeCon UK in London. I'll be there to meet you on Podcast Row on the weekend of June 11th and 12th. And you can still get tickets, but you better get them soon. They're going fast. You can still use my promo code, onceupon 22 for 10% off your registration and to let them know you heard about it on this podcast. Thanks. Once Upon a Crime is written and produced by me, Esther Ludlow. My research and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. And additional support, including the final audio mix for this episode, was provided by Studio 71. Until next time, be good to one another. <laughs>